Welcome to Trial Lawyer Review. My name is Jason Lazarus, your host. This podcast is for and about trial lawyers. We'll tell the stories of trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. And this will be about their stories and about their practices. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason Lazarus, your host for Trial Lawyer Review. Thank you for tuning in today for another episode. Trial Lawyer Review is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. In full disclosure, I'm not a professional podcaster. My day job is CEO of Synergy. And Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues at settlement like healthcare lien resolution, Medicare compliance, complex government benefit preservation techniques, and settlement planning and consulting. Uh, joining me on Trial Lawyer Review today is Bruce Stern, an exceedingly successful and leading brain injury catastrophic damages trial lawyer and shareholder with the law firm of Stark & Stark based in New Jersey. And Bruce has a uh, pretty impressive CV, so I'm going to read a little bit of it to you. Uh, he is certified uh, by the Supreme Court of New Jersey as a civil trial attorney. He is a member of the firm's accident and personal injury practice. His practice specializes in representing the victims of traumatic brain and spinal cord injuries and wrongful death. In 2004, he began publishing a uh, very impressive traumatic brain injury law blog to share his knowledge and specialization in the area of brain injury law. Uh, he is the author of uh, too many articles uh, that uh, would take me a long time to list out if I tried because I looked at him on his CV um, and has been a frequent lecturer uh, teaching other lawyers uh, about some of these complexities that he deals with in his practice uh, through the various trial lawyer associations he's been involved with. He co-authored a book entitled Litigating Brain Injuries, uh, published by Thomson Reuters, and a chapter entitled Brain Injuries, which is included in AAJ's litigation tort case series published by AAJ Press. And he has served as president of the AAJ. Uh, he was president from 2019 to 2020 and has been a member of the AAJ since 1982. So a little bit of time spent uh, dedicating his time and efforts to helping the AAJ. Uh, he is a member of the AAJ's Executive Committee and National Board of Governors. He's a past chair of the Traumatic Brain Injury Litigation Group and past chair of AAJ's Motor Vehicle Collision Highway and Premises Section. He's also been involved at the state level, involved as the past president of the New Jersey Association for Justice, and recipient of that organization's highest award, the Gold Medal for Distinguished Service. Um, in addition to his specialization in brain injury practice, he also handles construction incidents and has obtained a Occupational Safety and Health Administration OSHA certificate through a 30-hour outreach training program for the construction, construction industry. He is uh, certified as a certified civil trial attorney by both the New Jersey Supreme Court and the National Board of Trial Advocacy. He's also a fellow of the International Academy of Trial Lawyers and has been selected a fellow in the International Society of Barristers. Both organizations are highly selective and have rigorous standards for membership. 
So we are uh, lucky to have him as a guest today. Welcome for, to Try Lawyer View. Thank you. Thrilled to uh, be here. Looking forward to chatting with you. Bruce, can you talk a little bit about your law firm and your area of specialization in your practice? Sure. Um, so our law firm is about I'm somewhere between 85 and 100 attorneys. Uh, we're a very diverse practice. Um, the largest practice group is the personal injury uh, department. I think we have somewhere about 30, 35 uh, attorneys that do either personal injury or workers' compensation on behalf of the injured uh, party. We also um, then have a very large um, construction practice dealing with defective buildings. We have a very large securities practice. We have a large uh, litigation practice, family law practice, uh, states uh, and, and trust departments as well. So in doing some preparation for the podcast, as I always do, uh, I read that you always wanted to be an attorney, uh, but what led you to become a trial lawyer? Well, first to step back, uh, both my dad and my maternal grandfather were, were attorneys. Um, my grandfather, though, was the um, county counsel for as long as I remember, uh, until he passed away in, in the late 60s. And when he passed away, my dad then became the uh, county council uh, in Mercer County, which is the county for Trenton, where I, where I grew up. So I've always been around uh, attorneys. And um, my, besides being the county councils, both my dad and grandfather were also uh, Democratic county chairmen. And in the 60s, the governor, the state Democratic chair, and, and then obviously my grandfather were all from Mercer County, and they used to call me the little prosecutor. And I remember even in the 60s, so I was only, you know, 10 to 14 years old, I was reading books by F. Lee Bailey and uh, Clarence Darrow and all the great uh, trial attorneys. So I think I always wanted to be um, a trial attorney. My dad was a besides being county counsel, was a real estate attorney. And I remember uh, saying to one of uh, his friends who was the senior uh, workers' compensation judge who had asked me, you know, did you, you know, what made you be a lawyer? Did you ever think about not being a lawyer? And I said, I always wanted to be an attorney. And he turned to my dad and he said to me, you know, did your dad ever put pressure on you? And I said, no. And he turned to my dad and he said, is that true? My dad said, yeah, he never made the mistake of not wanting to be an attorney. Um, and, you know, whether, you know, I never thought about getting into personal injury until uh, I got a clerkship uh, out of law school. Um, and that's really what led me to where I am today. So I'm just curious, uh, you know, before we uh, came on, we were talking a little bit about your experience, childhood experience growing up sort of around courts. And you were talking a little bit about uh your experience playing sports inside the courtroom. Can you share that little tidbit? Yeah. So um, as the county counsel, my dad was always getting me uh, summer patronage jobs. And so for a couple summers, I had worked, he got me a job working in the courthouse, uh, <clears throat> which was really, you know, fascinating. One is I got to just sit and watch trials, um, which was always interesting. But like during lunch um, and in the summers, and a lot of times there was 
one big courtroom where the assignment judge was, and he never worked in the summer. They had off. So we used to play wiffle ball um, in his courtroom during lunch. And depending how where you hit the wiffle ball was either single, double, triple, or home run, or you got out. Um, and also we used to play hide-and-go-seek, so I knew every hiding spot in that courthouse. Uh, unfortunately, they, they don't use it for civil trials anymore. They built a new courthouse. Yeah, it seems but like it you didn't fun. have any choice but to be a lawyer <laughs> right. growing up with that. <laughs> so you're widely regarded as one of the leading experts on brain injury litigation in the nation. How did you find that niche? Well, I had started practicing in 1981. Um, I had worked for two firms when I got uh, hired at Stark & Stark, where I've been since 19. 88. And my, the, the, really the partner who built the firm, Albert Stark, um, had this hiring philosophy that you hire before you need to fill the position. So um, prior to coming to Stark and Stark, I had done a lot of products liability work. I tried a lot of cases. Um, and, but when I got to Stark and Stark, it was like, well, they already had somebody, a partner who did products liability. And so I was initially trying to figure out, like, where's, where's my place in this firm? And then uh, Albert sent me to a uh, brain injury seminar in Phoenix, uh, Arizona. Uh, this was, I think, 1990, sponsored by then the National Head Injury Foundation, uh, now the Brain Injury Association of America. And so I went to that uh, conference, a lot of attorneys there. And one of the speakers was uh, Marilyn Spivak, who literally started the, the Brain Injury Association, as I said, then the National Head Injury Foundation in her kitchen in Massachusetts. Her daughter had been seriously injured in a car accident and had sustained a severe traumatic brain injury. And in the 80s, there was really no place uh, for good treatment, uh, for care, advocacy group for people and families who had sustained traumatic brain injuries. And I listened to Marilyn Spivak, and I was just wowed by her. I mean, she was so such a motivating speaker. And I came back and became really one of the then foot soldiers in, uh, you know, representing people with uh, brain injuries. And so I went to the conference. And uh, when I got back, uh, I wrote to the two attorneys that had, were the moderators, Ken Colpan and Simon Fajet, and said, wow, that was a really great program. Uh, next year, uh, you know, could you have somebody speak on whatever the topic of, was interesting to me, whatever I was working on? And um, one time I wrote to them and said, hey, could you have somebody speak on QEEG, quantitative EEG, and I got a call from one of them and said, uh, hey, how would you like to speak? And I'm like, okay. Um, so I called Dr. Frank Duffy, who was a physician at Harvard, who really was one of the leading guys at the time, one of the leading doctors in um, QEEG, and said, hey, would you speak with me? And I flew up to Boston. I met with him. He agreed to speak with me. Uh, to me, with me. Uh, so he and I put on a an hour presentation at a conference down in uh, somewhere in Florida, I think at the Breakers, if I remember correctly. Um, and then after that, they started inviting me to speak. Uh, also, then I, when I came back, 
you know, I was like, wow, there's nobody doing this type of work. Um, and I had, from the presentations, you know, I learned to ask the right questions to clients, found that a lot of clients who were coming in, you know, had been in a car wreck, had a neck injury, and I'd start asking them, you know, what problems do you have? Do you have problems with attention, problems with the concentration? And all of a sudden, I was finding that a lot of my clients did suffer, you know, concussions or mild traumatic brain injuries and just built the practice. <clears throat> I think I had read somewhere that you had a um, kind of a, an interest or focus in the sciences. Um, is that something that was what provoked some, some interest in this area too with the complicated science that goes behind it? No, it really wasn't the science as it just was a very academic, uh, heavy um, subject. Um, you know, like I said, that back in the early 90s, you know, nobody knew anything uh, really about concussions and brain injuries. Um, so I started going uh, to lectures. I remember going to lectures at Mount Sinai or at NYU, and I'd be the only lawyer there. And that whether it was a rehab uh, presentation or a medical presentation, they're looking at me going like, well, who is this guy and why is he here? But it was a great way to, you know, meet experts and, and really learn learn the medicine. I'm curious, uh, because of my own personal experience, I, I was involved in an accident. Um, I'm a pretty avid cyclist and was hit by a car while I was cycling. Yeah, I watched the video. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not... Uh, I, I hate watching it because having to relive that, I'm, I'm sure you've probably heard that from clients you've represented isn't isn't what you want. Uh, you want to put it behind you. But, you know, the the accident um, forces basically broke every bone in my face. I had a Lafort three fracture. And, you know, I know that I had a concussion. You know, I was I was I was knocked out. But, um, you know, lost some of my my memories from before. And then, you know, the drugs that they gave me in the ICU kind of knocked out uh, another week after the accident. But, you know, it's funny because there was really no focus at all on whether there was, you know, any type. And, and clearly there was some kind of mild, you know, brain injury from that because just from the sheer fact of your 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 brain being bounced around in a, in a deceleration accident like that. But I'm just curious, you know, I mean, the damage were, were such and the, the coverage was such that I don't think it really mattered, you know, the, the fact that there may have been this other component uh, of damage. But is that then, is that very typical? It seems like that still is typical. There's, you know, a focus on really everything but the, the brain injury um, sometimes. Or, or it's well, I mean, certainly, um, you know, in the 90s and, you know, early 2000s, nobody, you know, really had any um, appreciation for for concussions. But um, so, you know, normally, um, you know, when people come in and they've been in, in really bad traumas, the most important thing, you know, they get triaged and, you know, it's really life and death. They just want to make sure if they're going to release you, you're going to walk out. And if they hospitalize you, they're more concerned with the physical injuries than they are, you know, cognitive problems, you know, and you know, putting aside cases with, mo with moderate or severe, um, you know, brain injury, you know, if there's long-term problems, you don't really get to appreciate them 
until you know you've been released and then you go home and you go back to work and then all of a sudden you're like but I can't I can't multitask anymore I forget you know if something interrupts me I uh, I forget so um, you know it's when I started doing this people were like you know thinking they were going crazy because all of a sudden you know they're two three months post trauma and they're having problems you know they're having problems with attention and concentration they don't understand why they're having those problems because they they weren't being addressed. Like I said, certainly in the 90s and early 2000s. I mean, we're much more sensitive now to the effects of mild brain injury just based on all the sports concussion, you know, literature that's out there. Um, but yet I uh, saw a presentation from uh, Jeff Manley, who's a neurosurgeon in San Francisco, and even folks who had CT scans you know, at, in the right, at the hospital in the emergency department, you know, a lot of them, even three months out, were no longer even being treated by anybody, you know, and they just go on. And so, yeah, uh, that's part of the problem. I'm curious if, if there is a case in particular that you've handled that you think is the most important of your career or, or influential <laughs> and, and why. And that, that may be hard to pick out out of a lot of significant cases I think I've seen that you've handled based on your CV. So um, I was thinking of that one, uh, and I, I guess I would put, there's like three different groupings that I, that I would look to. Um, so the first is one really had nothing to do with personal injury, had to do with um, Megan's Wall and Megan Tianka. Kayanka was the little girl that had been uh, sexually assaulted and killed by uh, somebody here in New Jersey that ended up becoming Megan's Hall um, and dealing with, with sex offenders. And when the law passed, they were starting to take older cases and grouping these people in terms of, of notification of where they could go or where they couldn't go. And so the first cases, uh, they had certain lawyers in the state or the county and then the state who were, quote, Megan approved. Uh, I was one of them. Uh, my senior partner, Albert Stark, was was one of those attorneys. And so because Albert was the, one of the most senior attorneys in the county and the first case came out of our county, um, this case was assigned to him. And this, this is one oftentimes he passed it on to uh, one of his associates, um, but she wasn't Megan's approved. So I said, here, give me the case, I'll handle it. And it had, it was representing a client who been convicted uh, of a sex crime, but it had to do with a prostitute who, and buying drugs, it really wasn't, it was not a sex assault case that you would think of. Um, and it was the issues were really civil law as opposed to criminal law. And so I said, I'll take this on. And I'm like, Hey, this is a civil case and it's being defended by the prosecutor's office. They don't know anything about civil law. So I sent out interrogatories. I sent out deposition notices. Um, and then we went before the judge and he denied, quashed everything I wanted to do. Um, and so, you know, I took the, I'm like, okay, now what am I supposed to do? I'm pro bono. Um, 
what's my obligation? So I filed an appeal, and you know, at that time they only used the initials of the my clients. They all had initials, and I was a my client was A B because it was the first case. And so I remember we go up to the appellate division, and uh, I say, "Hi," I put my appearance on the record. I represent, and I give his name, and the appellate judge is like. No, 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 you can't use his real name. And I go, like, can't we put the cone of silence down? I mean, we're in, a, we're in the judge's chambers. And she was on the phone with some of the other uh, appellate judges. And, and then from the appellate division, I had to take the case up to the Supreme Court. And I always remember, I was thinking, you know, the court comes out, it's my first time in front of the Supreme Court. And then the Chief Justice comes out, Chief Justice Wilentz, and I'm thinking, oh, he's going to thank me at least. You know, here I am bringing this pro bono case, and there's all these amicus uh, lawyers, and he just gets up and says, Mr. Stern will hear you. So I start arguing, uh, and I'm not getting any questions. So finally, I said, you know, you didn't ask me, you know, what I think about the law, but if you were to ask me, here's what I would say. And then all these questions started coming in, and ultimately then the case got sent back um, and then we went to trial, and I'll never forget, we were up on the fourth floor in the courthouse, and my client's with me, and then the arresting police officer gets off the elevator. This is the officer who had arrested my client and charged them uh, years before, and they embrace. And I'm like, well, this is really strange. Um, and then we go and we try the case, and they put, the prosecutor puts on their witnesses, and then the trial judge says to me, Mr. Stern, it's your turn. Which, are you going to put your client on the stand? And I go, no. And he's like, you're not going to call your client? I go, no, judge. I call my client. You then say you don't find him credible. That's a basis for you know you upholding your decision. Nope, no thanks. At which point, the judge says, I'll see counsel in chambers, and uh, the prosecutor ended up rolling over and agreeing to my position. So uh, it was one of the cases I was really proud of. It was the first time I ever went to the Supreme Court. Was, um, you know, did it pro bono. Um, and then, and so that's like one, one case. Another, another is a bucket kind of our, our cases I've done um, as friends of the court uh, where uh, I've uh, gone to the Supreme Court on behalf of the New, uh, New Jersey Association for Justice um, in New Jersey, for a very long time, um, if you had an economic loss and you had, were calling an economist to testify, he or she would not be permitted to give the bottom line. So let's assume you have somebody that lost, was going to be out, of, couldn't work anymore, was going to lost 20 years of work uh, life and say, you know, was making $100,000 a year. And so you just would multiply 20 times $100,000. And you would say to the jury, you know, the economic loss is $2 million, and then you had to take out taxes. But putting that aside, but you couldn't give the bottom line. So you would say to the expert, you know, in your opinion, what is the future loss of earning capacity? And the expert would get up on, go over to the blackboard and write $100,000 times 20. But just but couldn't, couldn't do the math. Couldn't do the math. <laughs> Um, and so that was the law for a long time that I always thought was wrong. And so finally I said, well, I'm going to violate this. And 
um, it went up, we it went up to the. I tried to get rid of it, and then finally I got brought in in a case, and we got the uh, Supreme Court in New Jersey to overturn that, so that we didn't have to go through that silly uh, exercise. You know, because I'd always go to the jurors and go, you know, you saw my expert economist multiple put twenty times a hundred thousand dollars, and you're probably figuring out, can he do the math? You know, our court rules don't don't permit it. So that was a case I was really proud about. Um, I've had a, a couple in front of the Supreme Court dealing, New Jersey Supreme Court dealing with um, low pack collisions and whether photographs would be admissible, um, whether uh, you needed an expert to testify. And then the last case I had um, dealt with, in New Jersey, we have strict liability and in a products liability case, you know, generally speaking, there's no comparative negligence on the injured person. And I always thought that because there's no meaningful choice in the workplace, I always thought that in non-product liability cases, you know, workers uh, shouldn't be subjected to comparative negligence because, again, there's no um, meaningful choice. And so I came in as amicus counsel in that case. And we, although we weren't totally successful in getting the court to bar comparative negligence, we got a really good standard of care, uh, of care uh, charge uh, out of it. So I'm, I was really proud about about that. And then from my trial work, I guess the two cases I'm proud of about is representing, I'll use immigrants for, not, I can't think of a better word. I represented a, an Indian who was riding a bike uh, on the sidewalk who had no, uh, there are no brakes on the bike. Um, and he literally was riding his bike on the sidewalk, and there's a dispute as to whether he just rode out when he got to the corner, but a bus was making a left-hand turn, and the rear wheels of the bus caught uh, my client, and he ended up uh, having uh, one of his legs amputated. And the local police uh, gave my client a ticket for riding a bike with... Um, you know, with, with no, uh, no breaks. And, uh, so we went to trial on that case and, um, we got a verdict on, in my client's favor. Um, so I was really proud about that. And then the other was a mild traumatic brain injury case where I represented a young Chinese woman who, uh, father first came to the United States from China and on a visitor's pass and didn't go back. And he then brought his wife and, and daughter over and, she ended up joining the military, which at the time, I didn't even know that you didn't even have to be a United States citizen to be in our military. And I thought, geez, you know, being Chinese, um, you know, from uh, China, to how could you ever get into our military? But she was a, um, I can't remember the rank that she was, something similar to like a sergeant, but she's pretty much working as a clerk. Um, and, uh, she was involved in an accident, um, had very little treatment, but was was having problems. And we were trying this county, uh, this case in Burlington County, which is a very conservative, pretty much Republican uh, district, but it has a military base. Fort Dix uh, is, is in the in the county, and that's where she had been when working when she got hurt. Um, 
So on one hand, she was military, which was good. On the other hand, you know, she was Chinese, which was concerning. I mean, I remember, you know, we had some Vietnam vet as a prospective juror, and uh, he got excused. Um, but we went to trial, and we went to trial um, during, this was 2016, um, right during the election, the presidential election. Um, literally, we took the verdict the Wednesday after the election. Um, and so I tried that to verdict and, and got a really good uh, verdict, got a $2 million verdict for a woman who, you know, was back working for the Navy and, um, you know, but the jury, you know, understood it. And one of the things I'll never forget is, you know, I put her mom on the stand and her mom didn't speak any English, um, only spoke Mandarin. And, you know, I said, hey, you know, when your daughter was 20, she left to join the uh, United States Navy. And how did you feel about that? And she said, I was really unhappy. And I said, why? And she said, because I wasn't ready to give up my daughter yet. And I, you know, and I think that regardless of what the language was or what the culture was, people understood a mother not wanting to let her young daughter leave home. Um, and we got a, as I said, we got a wonderful verdict. And I told him to settle and the carrier, I called the carrier actually on election day. And I said, you need to settle this case. And they go, well, no, we have two uh, observers in the courtroom. They say it's going well. I said, it's not going well for you. Um, I said, I know when a case is going well and I know when a case is not going well. And I told her the story. I was in trial when my adversary was giving a summation and I was sending a text back to my partner going, I'm getting killed here. <laughs> you know? So I've been doing this long enough that you know when a case is going well and, and when it's not going well. So, so those are kind of, I guess, my, what I think of as high, my highlights. I'm sure there were others, but that's what comes to mind. Well, it's great as a trial lawyer for you to be able to effectuate change in the system, you know, whether it's, you know, the, the Megan's Law or, you know, changing the way cases are tried in New Jersey and then also having that ability to impact someone's life after it's been altered by an accident. So to me, that's one of the things I most admire about trial lawyers is, is what you guys do really is so impactful, whether it's, you know, making changes that help people get the compensation they deserve when they get hurt or actually getting that compensation for people and representing people when, you know, they've typically experienced something that's probably the most, um, you know, difficult time in their lives. I know for me, that, that certainly was the case. And that's really, you know, we represent, you know, people day to day. Um, and that's certainly gratifying being able to help them. Um, on the hand, you know, the, the amicus appellate work that I do, you know, there you're helping everybody, you know, you're changing the law and you're making it fairer. And I don't know, somebody from AAJ and I think it was Tom Lambert said, you know, the law's not settled till it's settled well. Um, and it's, you know, something I've always remembered. I'm curious, sir, are there cases that you're currently working on that you think may have a larger impact on the system like that or legislatively? I know, you know, I read that you are 
pretty active um, in that regard as well. Are there things that you feel like you're working on that may have that kind of impact? I don't know. I mean, I guess the, the biggest case right now that, that comes to mind that, I, that I'm working on um, is a lady who had a uh, both her legs amputated in a, in a crash on the Garden State Parkway where we're suing the, the New Jersey Turnpike Association, the um, guardrail manufacturer, and the guardrail installer for um, de defective guardrails and, and defective um, and improper installation uh, of those guardrails. And hopefully, you know, we'll have a good outcome there and, and make some changes in the way these things are installed. Yeah, I've seen some of those cases in the past, um, and those can be really, really nasty injuries caused by those those guardrails when they're not uh, installed properly or defective designs and whatnot. So it's kind of scary, you know, being being someone that travels on the roads, you know, seeing those kinds of cases because man, it's um, it can be devastating, and that sounds like devastating injuries for your client. Yeah, I mean, what you, I mean, what one of my experts kind of analogized is, you know, if you take a pencil and you just, you can just snap it, um, but if you took the pencil and put it this way, and you know, you can't break the pencil that way. It just, you know, goes through, and that's what happens with these guardrails. You know, if they're not installed properly, they just go right through the door, push the door right on in. It's like a spear. Yeah. Yeah, scary, scary wow. stuff. So in, um, in, in again, doing my research for our uh, discussion today, I read that you've developed some new theories uh, of the law, particularly relating to obtaining economic recovery and representing clients with acquired brain injuries. Can you talk about that? Sure. So uh, my friend Justin Kahn, I don't know if you know Justin, great trial lawyer in South Carolina, he sent me a a quote that I think really encapsulates my kind of philosophy in practicing law. It was a quote by Sarah Little Turnbull. And she said, if you don't stretch, you don't know where the edge is. Um, and that's kind of like, like I said, my, my philosophy, it's, you know, you got to push the limits, you got to find where, you know, go as far, push the boundaries as, as far, you know, as you can go. Um, so from, an economic standpoint, you know, as I said, when I started, you know, you couldn't even put a bottom line on a, for an economic claim. Still in New Jersey, we can't argue uh, a specific number for, you know, pain and suffering and, and disability and impairment, <clears throat> which is, makes life difficult when you don't have that kind of anchor that uh, you see in other states. Um, but um, folks at you know, vocational economics uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, who are experts that I use, and uh, the CEO is, or president was uh, Tony Gamboa, a, a vocational economic expert out of Louisville, and he kind of developed this methodology, you know, looking statistically at um, people who were, I mean, if someone's, uh, severely injured in a crash and can't work, you know, quantifying the future loss of earning capacity is pretty easy. Um, but he came up with a methodology where, where people are back to work, working full time, still 
you know, what we know is regardless of gender, regardless of race, regardless of education, people who have a permanent disability will, over their work life, usually earn less money per year and will have a shortened work life, meaning they will drop out of the workforce earlier than others. Um, and so one of the cases that I had that went up to the New Jersey Appellate Division was a case where I was representing a client involved in a uh, accident. He had a, a brain injury. He was hit by a, a truck. Um, I'm sorry, he was hit by a car. Um, and then we ended up suing the New Jersey, um, state of New Jersey, because the guy had gotten a flat tire. The defendant was a from South Carolina or Florida, and he had come up to New Jersey, I think, to visit his daughter or something. And anyway, he got a flat tire, and he pulled off to the shoulder in the in the middle of the on the center median. And the New Jersey um, tow truck guy came up and basically told him, "I'm going to call the state police, and I'll tell you when it's safe to go." Because they couldn't they couldn't change his tire on the grass median. The jack kept sinking. And so he said, I'm going to get, I need you to drive over to the other, to the right side, shoulder, um, and told the defendant to go when it wasn't safe. And he ended up striking my client, uh, who, who was, um, suffered a orbital fracture and had a, a mild brain injury. But at the time of the accident, he was like working for one of the financial banks, making $900,000. When we went to trial, I think he was making a million for a year. So, um, and in New Jersey, when you sue a public entity, in order to get non-economic damages, you have to show that the injury had a significant impact on someone's life. And the trial judge dismissed my non-economic damages um, because he said, hey, your client's back to work. He's working full time. He's making more money uh, and dismissed the, the non-economic damages, the pain and suffering, the disability and impairment, the loss of enjoyment of life. So we went to trial only on future loss of earning capacity. Um, and what we argued was that he was going to be forced out of the work life, out of the workforce earlier that as he got older and he was more fatigued um, he would drop out of the workforce and the jury came back with a verdict of I think 3.6 million dollars um, or something like that um, it got partly reduced due to the negligence of the driver who we had settled with earlier. Um, <clears throat> the defendant, uh, the state of New Jersey, had moved to bar and moved to dismiss our economic claim, I think, three times before trial, during trial, after we took the verdict. We then went up to the appellate division and uh, we were successful uh, on the appeal. And so I've been, you know, lecturing and using that. Uh, methodology for years now. So um, switching gears, I'm curious what your experience was like uh, writing uh, a book which you co-authored with a medical doctor um, entitled Litigating Brain Injuries. I, um, I took basically 20 years worth of experience and things I'd written and, and published a book last year called The Art of Settlement. And 
uh, it was, it was an incredible amount of work. I mean, it was gratifying and, and I felt like it was needed in that area. Just curious what your, what was the process like for you writing that book? Well, first of all, um, there was a, I won't say a draft, someone else, uh, Thompson, it was then Thompson West had hired somebody, another attorney to, to write the book. Uh, and at least one attorney, and I think just one, and she had started writing the book. Um, and I don't know if she just dropped the assignment, they didn't like. Um, so I, I picked it up. And so that was kind of different because there's, in a sense, there was an outline. On the other hand, it wasn't very good and it wasn't anywhere near completion. So, um, you know, I started writing, I enjoyed writing, started writing articles in, I think, late 80s, early 90s. So I took a lot of that uh, material, but, you know, just starting out one, I mean, it's a lot of work. Um, and then what makes it even more work is every year they ask me to update it or, you know, write an update, um, which is a really, te that's more, that's more difficult than you think than writing the book. Writing the book was much easier than, you know, coming up and going, okay, how can I update this? You know, what? What can I write now new, you know, and there are always some obviously new stuff. It's never a stagnant, the practice is never stagnant. It's always dynamic and changing, but uh, that's a lot of work. But writing the book wasn't really that difficult. It just was time consuming, but probably more difficult to my typist than for me. Yeah, similar, similar experience. Um... I mean, you're clearly a thought leader in this area, given all the articles and chapters of different books you've written in addition to, the, to this book that you co-authored. I, I think you touched on it briefly, but I'm just curious, what is it about writing that you enjoy? Or maybe the better question is, why do you spend your incredibly valuable time on, on writing? Well, I, I always think, first, it's important to share what we know with others. Um, you know, it drives me nuts when you'll get, see some attorneys that won't share their experts, won't share material. I don't believe in that. You know, there's enough work for everybody. Um, and again, it's really for the greater good. Um, so I like writing for others. I like teaching for others. Um, also, you learn when you write. Um, so one of the early things, the articles, and then I wrote a couple chapters, was on um, attacking and debunking um, these low-impact experts that the defense and insurance companies would hire. And they, you know, they'd hire these, quote, experts to come in and say, well, the forces in this crash were not sufficient to cause brain injury. Um, and so I was getting these reports, and so I started trying to figure out how I could cross-examine them, what was the methodology they were using, was it valid or invalid, what assumptions were they making, etc. Um, and I think I actually, you know, authored articles um, before I ever did it. So I wrote these articles on how to do it, having never done it. 
I guess it's kind of like Bruce Springsteen writing songs about driving when he didn't even have a license for years and years. Um, and then I remember when I finally went and started cross-examining these experts, and I'm like, wow, what I wrote was was true. It was right. I, I could take these people uh, apart. So you learn when you write because you start doing the research and, you know, you start learning things. You know, so for instance, uh, one of the things I'm really interested in, in lecturing about now is, um, you know, defense says that, you know, in, in these mild brain injury cases is everybody gets better. You know, they get better within three months, whatever it, it may be, um, <clears throat> which is such nonsense. But uh, going to these conferences, uh, you know, Brent Mazel, who, Dr. Brent Mazel, is a neurologist from, from Galveston, Texas. He's uh, the medical director of the Brain Injury Association of America. And he wrote a paper saying brain injury is a disease, not an event. And, and what he meant by that was, you know, the defense is always saying, you know, the time that the per patient is worse is at the time of the crash. And that time heals all injuries or makes all injuries better so that if somebody gets work gets worse over time well it can't be from the brain injury it's either malingering or it's psychological whatever it may be and so dr mazel wrote this wonderful wonderful paper you can find it on the uh, website of the brain injury association of america it's got a different title but it's pretty much the same thing and you know in i watched brent lecture and in his lecture he talks about how people with traumatic brain injury whether it's mild moderate or severe but even in mild cases have increased um, risk of, of death a uh, number of papers showing that even people with mild brain injury have a reduced um, life expectancy um, they have risk for dementia risk for Parkinson's disease, risk for multiple sclerosis, there's endocrine uh, disorders, there's autonomic uh, dysfunction. So there's lots of disease that is directly related to traumatic brain injury. So I thought this is really from an academic or medical interesting, but how can we use it in litigation? Because you can take someone who has a mild uh, traumatic brain injury um, or, and, you know, you can say that the person has an increased risk of dementia, an increased risk of getting Parkinson's disease. But in the state where I practice and in, in most states in the United States, in order for a medical expert to give an opinion, that opinion has to be to a reasonable degree of medical certainty, more likely than not. So although there's an increased risk of dementia, for instance, you can't, if, the, if, you, can, if you ask the doctor, doctor, in your opinion, will the person get Parkinson's? Will they get dementia? The doctor can't say, yes, in my opinion, it's more likely than not. So you're not in most states, like for instance in Connecticut, you can, that would be, even if it's not um, to a reasonable degree of, of medical certainty, just the increased risk uh, would be enough to go to the jury with it. But so 
but I'm from New Jersey and we can't. So then the question came in, how can we get this admitted into, what can we do with it in a litigation? So start, I was getting interested and I had, uh, you know, my publisher wanted me to write something for the supplement. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to write on increased risk. Now, conceptually, how can I, what can I think of to, how to use it? Um, and so I ended up writing, you know, a paper uh, or part of a book, uh, part of my book on how to use increased risk. And now I give lectures on how to use that, you know, increased risk. Um, even in states where you may not be able to get it admitted as such, but when you can't, how else can you get it in? So for instance, um, you can get the psychological effect. So if your client, you know, says, hey, you know, I'm worried that I'm going to get Alzheimer's or I'm worried I'm going to get dementia, you can get it in. And then even if you can't get in for that, you know, when you're cross-examining these defense doctors and they say, well, everybody gets better. Well, you can say, if doc, if, you know, first of all, if everybody gets better in three months, why does somebody like Dr. Tom McAllister, who's uh, one of the top neuropsychiatrists in the United States, call mild traumatic brain injury a public health epidemic, public health problem, if something gets better in three months? Why is there so much research on even mild traumatic brain injury if everybody gets better? Um, you know, and if you think everybody gets better, then, you know, here's all this literature. I mean, and it's, you know, tons of literature on Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's, increased risk for all these problems. So clearly it's not some benign condition that goes away in, you know, six weeks to three months. So I learned something by writing. Long answer yeah, to a short question. <laughs> no. I, it, it's it's exactly my view of it, and it's why you know. Also, we we are very religious about it um, at Synergy, using that platform to educate trial lawyers and also become that expert. Right when you when you take the time to do deep dive uh, on some of these topics, like Medicare, for example, or ERISA, you know they're they're they can have some complexity, and when you start doing the research and writing that. You know, it it helps everybody else by publishing that, but it also, as you said, sharpens your skill as as an expert. And for those of us that that actually enjoy writing, I am admittedly one of those people. Um, it's it's great to be able to to get the feedback. Hey, that I read that that helped me in some way in my practice, and that's that's ultimately you know the the greatest compliment. You, you can pay me is, hey, something you wrote helped me understand this better, help me I issue spot something in a case, um, you know, when we were settling it, that, that's great. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, there'll be times where I'm, I've traveled to some state to give a lecture and somebody will come up to me and go like, you probably don't remember me, but you sent me something, you know, 10 years ago when, you know, it, we got a good outcome as a result. And you know, that makes it all worthwhile. Yeah, the idea that, you know, somehow you're you're better off by not sharing the information because your competitors get it or or 
like you said, there, there's really so much work out there. It, it's kind of a ridiculous narrow view to take to, to not share when you've got, you know, an incredible team of experts or you yourself are an expert, you know, why, why not share that education and try and help everybody to make sure ultimately the industry or the people that you're serving are, are better off in the end. Sure. I mean, I got a call this morning from someone from South Jersey and he's like, I've got this kid who got, you know, suffered, had a skull fracture and he's got these problems, you know, he needs cognitive therapy, you know, who would you refer him to? And I said, well, here's the three experts I would hire, one, two, and three, you know, and that warrior's going to do a better job. He's going to get a better recovery and uh, that child's going to be better off. So well worth it. Absolutely. So uh, switching gears, I wanted to ask you a bit about leadership. Uh, you have been uh, an incredible leader amongst trial lawyers in your own state and at the national level. What's driven you in that regard? Again, it's, you know, you can be an Indian and you can complain, you know, you don't like this or you don't like that, you know, or you can do something about it. Um, and that's, you know, kind of how I've, how I've approached it. Um, what, you know, was, you know, I w want to lead. Um, I want to make change for the better. Um, want to better represent my clients, better represent injured people first in New Jersey and then across the country if we can. So in terms of the trial or associations like AAJ and the state level, uh, organizations, uh, why are those so important, um, in your opinion, and what is your involvement with those organizations meant to you in terms of your career and, and the relationships you've forged? Mm. Well, I mean, it, without the, you know, the state trial lawyers association, there would be nobody at the state level, um, preventing the Chamber of Commerce uh, from getting its way and taking people's rights. You know, if it wasn't for AAJ, um, there'd be no organization really strongly standing there, you know, fighting for the injured uh, and protecting their rights. You know, if it wasn't for AAJ, for instance, during this COVID, uh, you know, the stimulus packages, you know, Mitch McConnell would have given immunity to restaurants um, and businesses, and they all would have, you know, opened and people would have gotten sick and died. Um, and that's the role, you know, that we play, you know, besides, you know, the educational support that we give uh, to our members. Um, but without the, tr the trial lawyer organizations, you know, the chamber would have free run. I mean, the public agrees with our position, but, you know, that's, a, that's an always uh, win the day. Um, but it's been really important to me to, you know, be involved in, in these trial lawyer, you know, organizations. Um, the, some the closest friends I have now are people that I met through these trial lawyer, uh, organizations, uh, you know, their colleagues from New Jersey, their colleagues from around, around the country. Um, 
know, I, I was fortunate that when I joined, you know, Stark and Stark in the late 80s, they were very supportive of what I wanted to do. Um, <clears throat> they were supportive when I wanted to get more involved in our state trial lawyer organization. Um, you know, and then I always tell this story. I, two lawyers from West Virginia, Harry Dietzler and Jim Peterson, great trial lawyers uh, from, uh, from Charleston, West Virginia, were doing a pack drive for then Atwood, now AHA. And they came up to New Jersey to, to raise money for the organization. And I don't remember where I ran into them. Probably they came to the office to pitch us for money. And I was talking with them, and I just started getting involved in uh, the brain injury work. It only, I think, I'd gone to one or two conferences. You know, and they said, you know, hey, um, a friend of ours from West Virginia is starting this traumatic brain injury litigation group through the National Trial Lawyers Organization. You know, you should get involved. So I called the attorney and became a member, and he was there for a year, and then he kind of dropped out. And the next year, the conference uh, was in um, Arlington, Virginia, in uh, Crystal City. Uh, so I went down there, and we're really leaderless, and uh, a lawyer came in who said he was been asked to reorganize it, and he said, you know, you're going to be an officer, and you're going to be an officer, and I became an officer, and then... Next thing I knew, you know, I was getting invited to uh, speak at our national trial lawyer organizations and then starting to lecture, you know, around the, the country. And one of the things that really disturbed me is he said, you know, basically I've been appointed for life. And I didn't think anybody in any organization should be appointed for life. Um, and I took him on, um, you know, and said, hey, and I created the bylaws that we still have that you could only be chair for one year. Because I believe everybody ought to have an opportunity. Nobody should be there, you know, forever. Um, so, you know, here we are, you know, 30 years later. Um, and the, org the group's still running strong. We have a great listserv and, you know, we share information. And we've trained more and more lawyers. You know, one of the things that always disturbed me, why we, um, you know, I was a member of, the, when I told you, I started going to these conferences from the Brain Injury Association of America. Um, and as I said, I eventually I got invited to speak, and every year I would get invited to speak again. And then in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, the leadership of BIA changed. Um, the original... Um, executive was came out of the Kennedy Foundation, so he was used to giving out a lot of money, and he was really interested in training professionals, both doctors and lawyers. Uh, and then when he left, um, a new exec came in, and he came from the the disability community, and so he was much more interested in families and survivors than he was professionals, and. You know, they had been run. We had been running these legal medical legal conferences for about eleven, twelve years, and we we never make money. Sometimes, if we were lucky, we'd break even. Sometimes, if we were, uh, we lost money. Some of us would chip in to break even. But he th and 
We were supposed to meet in Phoenix on September 13th, 2001. Obviously, that didn't happen. Um, but after that, you know, the, then the second exec made the decision that it wasn't economically feasible to continue running these seminars, which I thought was, such, was so short-sighted because I'm like, yeah, so you lose $10,000. You are training an army of lawyers around the country to help your constituents, you know, the families and the survivors. You know, the economic gain from that is tremendous. Um, and so then I got involved in um, founding the International Brain Injury Society and the uh, North America Brain Injury Society. And so NABIS in 2002 or 2003, we took over running those medical legal seminars and we've been running them ever since. NABIS has now come under the umbrella of the International Brain Injury Association and uh, I'm treasurer of both of those. So. I've been to a few of the NABIS uh, conferences, pretty incredible collection of experts, both on the medical and legal side. Uh, it's interesting, I, I was talking to um, to another guest on the podcast, and he was talking about the Trilower Associations almost being, you know, like a, a massive firm, because like on the listserv, you can go out there and seek assistance, and other lawyers are, are always willing to help their fellow members of, of that trial or, uh, organization when they've encountered an issue that they they don't know what to do with or is outside their area of expertise. And that, that kind of support is pretty incredible that the trial organizations do. But I think the public doesn't really understand how much protection is secured at the hands of trial organizations, which are, you know, certainly um, at a disadvantage when you compare to the strength of the chamber that they're typically going up against. So, you know, the importance of it really, I think most people don't really quite understand it. Yeah, you're certainly right about that. But I mean, talking, taking the first point, you know, with our, you know, listservs. Um, so, for instance, uh, on Monday uh, or yesterday, they blend together as we're locked in our homes. Um, you know, one of uh, our members is like, I'm going to trial in New York uh, next month. Um, you know, I'm trying to put together my voir dire questions. And, you know, do you think I should ask about people's jurors' views on COVID, on wearing masks, et cetera? He said, you know, I had seen a lecture where one trial consultant had said, you know, not to do it. And and all of a sudden there was we had this very wonderful, you know, discussion on the listserv about the strengths and weaknesses of, you know, either approach, do or don't. Um, you know, we one of the in the big litigation topics, you know, is um introducing uh, or meeting the Daubert standard for the um introduction of diffusion tensor imaging. You know, and so, you know, you have, uh, I think the first brief was written by Steve Smith and Rich Rosen in a case they had in South Carolina that I think ultimately settled. And, you know, we've taken that brief and the next person that 
had that issue, they got the brief, and then the next person had the brief, and, you know, here we are, you know, a number of years later, the brief's better, you know, everybody's had a hand in updating it, and getting more exhibits, and, you know, and then I, you get some lawyer that doesn't know what he or she is doing, and, you know, they may have come to a lecture, and said, oh, I gotta get DTI, and, uh, and they, so they go and get, um, have their client uh, undergo a diffusion tensor imaging with just a sophisticated, you know, MRI. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're getting ready to go to trial. And then the defense files a motion to bar their expert. And they're like, oh, my God, nobody told me that, you know, this was going to happen. And, you know, so they'll go on the listserv and like, hey, I'm getting there's this motion file. What, what do I do? You know, and obviously the last thing, you know, we want is to have an adverse decision, you know, and so I've had times where, you know, I've said to the lawyer, let me call your expert. I'll do the direct for you if you want free. I'll just, I'll do the introduction. Here's the brief. You know, don't mess this up for everybody else. You know, here it is. Um, and then every, you know, everybody succeeds um, as a result. You know, and the public Absolutely. doesn't really understand, you know, what we do. Um, you know, they don't know that, you know, we're the only we're the only one with, you know, keeping the finger in the dike, so to speak. Yeah, very true. Um, I, I want to ask you something that's uh, kind of near and dear to my heart, which is this idea of empathy. When we have new people that join our team, I always walk them through our our corporate values and the importance of, you know, that, but I also re really hammer home this idea of our mission, you know, the importance of uh, the people that we serve, those that are catastrophically injured and, you know, what they've been through. And usually I'll use my accent, even though it's, it's not near, nearly as severe as many of the folks that we deal with, but just trying to personalize so they understand, you know, in a moment your life has changed by, something like this. I'm curious, um, in terms of the clients that you represent, how do you connect empathetically with what they've been through and then in turn be able to, you know, get that point across to the jury so the jury has a better understanding of what your client's been through? Well, I think the first thing we can do as a profession is stop using the word case. Um, you know, I have a case. I mean, you can go with a group of lawyers and you'll, you'll hear lawyers go, I have a case, I have a case. You know, so now you've totally impersonalized, um, you know, the, the client that you're, that you're representing or, you know, the family that you're representing. Um, so that's, that's, to me, lesson number one. Um, Rodney Jew, who you may know, who's a trial consultant out in, in Napa, has a an exhibit that, you know, it says, you know, we define ourselves by what we love to do. What we love to do is who we are. When someone takes away what we love to do, they take away who we are. And so I try to keep, you know, that in my mind is, you know, it's not a brain injury case. It's not a you know, leg off case. It's not a damaged baby case. God, you hate that phrase. 
um, you know, it's a, a person whose life has been totally changed by, you know, the negligence or wrongdoing of some person or corporation. Uh, and when you approach, you know, a case from that standpoint, then you're able to, you know, understand what the client goes through. I think the other problem and I try to teach my younger lawyers is get out of the office. You know, practice of personal injury law is not, putting aside trials, is not an office practice. Um, you know, so I, I tell younger lawyers, you know, if you have some downtime, first of all, go to the courthouse and watch trials. It's one of the things I got, uh, I had the advantage of when I was a clerk, when I was a law clerk, and then also when I first started practicing for a local Trenton firm, you know, I was three blocks from the courthouse. So if I had a free afternoon, I'd just run up to the courthouse and sit in the, in the pews and watch trial lawyers, good lawyers and bad lawyers, because watching bad lawyers is just as instructive as, as good lawyers. And then you got to see, you know, back in the 80s, I only practiced in my county. I mean, I never went out of county. So I knew all the doctors who were going to testify, plaintiff in defense. And so you learned how um, to represent them. But in terms of, of empathy and representing clients, you've got to go to their homes. You've got to see how they live. Um, <clears throat> you know, one of the things that Rodney Jew has, has taught me, you know, we make exhibits. And so, you know, you can look at the exhibits, go on your, Know, follow your story. There's the anatomical drawing you know, of your injuries and, and all of that. And, you know, I think lawyers think cases are about injuries, but they're really about people. And more so than the importance of your damage experts and your medical anatomical drawings is, you know, the photographs of what your client liked to do and now, what's their life like now? And so, very involved now. And when I create my exhibits, you know, through Rodney's help, you know, we have an exhibit of what did the client, what did the patient, what did the person like to do before? And then Rodney's always compared to what? Because all, all personal injury is compared to what? What was their life like before? What is it like compared to now? Everything before and after. And so what's their life like now? And then you always want to have hope. I mean, there's no point in doing this if there's no hope. I mean, you hope that, I mean, the jurors are never going to give you money just to give because your person got hurt. They, they want to think that their money that they're awarding is going to help, that it's going to make life better for the injured person. And so you've got to, you know, give them hope. And, and like I said, the best way is to, you know, go to the person's home. I mean, when I learned this lesson, and it took a while, you know, it represented a family whose the husband and the father um, died a tragic uh, death as a result of a negligently constructed set of steps and ended up getting uh, contracting meningitis, which then led to Stephen Johnson syndrome from the Dilantin because he got seizures and then they gave him Dilantin and then that caught Stephen Johnson and he basically literally he burned to death over five months. Um, and, you know, we wanted to get photographs to show just what the loss was. 
and we went to the client, I went to the client's home, you know, and there were, you know, his closet was still filled, his clothes were still there, you know, two years later, and, you know, his daughters um, got tattoos of, because they ended up, um, he was cremated, and they buried his ashes at, at, on their farm, and they'd gotten the longitude and latitudes, and they tattooed those on, on their ankles, and, you know, we found in the house, um, a song that the decedent um, had written to his wife when he was 16 years old. They had dated and started going out when he was 16. And now they had kids in college. And, you know, there on, you know, the wall was this, you know, song he had written for his then girlfriend, now wife. And, you know, you really got an understanding about how close this family was and what the loss really meant, you know, as opposed to, okay, you know, person died, you know, died a tragic death, here's the economic loss, you know, here's the medical component, and we obviously had to have that and show all this causation. But, you know, what the really case was really about was what was the loss meant to this family? And you can't get that from sitting in your office. Yeah, and then absolutely. once you understand it, then it's, it's easy to explain it to a jury. Because they can see that you feel it, that you're empathetic, that uh, you're, you know, you understand the emotion. And it becomes pretty easy at that point. So um, with the remaining time we have, I wanted to ask you a couple questions about the, the business aspect of the practice of law. You know, with, with technology accelerating at the rate it has been, in a lot of areas, you know, one area is in cars and, you know, now we've, we've got cars that have autopilot and, um, you know, functions that are supposedly making us uh, safer. Do you see that changing the practice of personal injury law or is it just more potential um, for people to be harmed when companies put profits ahead of the safety of people? Well, <clears throat> there's a lot of parts to that question, you know, starting with, you know, your comment, turning to the business um, and the business of practicing walls is extremely, you know, important. Um, you know, when I first started practicing, I worked for this Trenton firm and I was there for three or four years and then I went to another uh, firm in, in Trenton and they had a huge volume practice but um, in neither of those uh, firms was I ever required to bring in clients or bring in and bring in business um, you know so for me then it was just really the practice of law I wasn't interested at all in the business of law and then when I joined Stark and Stark uh, one of my managing partners you know stressed that you know, how important the business side is that if you don't get clients then you know you're, you have a problem and you know at, at Stark and Stark we were always taught you know get involved in the community um, so I was always encouraged get involved join an organization that's of interest to you um, at the time before the firm grew to become a more regional firm, we were really, like I said, a 
local Mercer County firm, and we used to have a zone of desire where we could live, that you had to live. And then literally, my managing partner took, made a circle you know, around it. So when I lived in Pennsylvania, I had to move to New Jersey because it was outside the zone. Because um, he and I understood from the business standpoint because it was he would say, "Hey, you know, unless you're a real jerk, you know, your your neighbors will come to you, you know." And here I was, if I'm, you live in Pennsylvania, you know, you, we can't take do their work. Um, so just the business isn't you know is important. Um, you know, we always had a saying in our, in our firm, you know, the other thing that Ed Stark and Stark, Albert Stark, we always had these sayings, you know, one, you know, two heads are better than one, even if one is cabbage. But, you know, we always talked about um, building chains. And one of his expressions was, put your partner out of work. You know, because the older, more senior attorneys were always in a better position to go out and get business. So if you could put your partner out of work, that forced the partner to go out and find new areas of business. And it, you know, Stark and Stark, you know, the firm has always encouraged entrepreneurship, you know, go out, push the limits, find new business. You know, and I think, you know, I, I remember we were at a firm retreat years ago and I'm like, you guys, younger guys, you guys got to get out of just doing auto cases. You know, why is somebody going to come to you when they come to me, you know, or this partner or that partner that has a better reputation, is probably a better trial lawyer than you, you know, more experienced than you, you know, you need to find, you know, your own niche, which is what I ended up doing, not necessarily on my own because I was sent to that brain injury seminar, you know, 30 some years ago, but I, you know, I picked up and ran with it. Um, yeah. And then, you know, you mentioned, you know, automated cars, they tell you that they're safer, but you know, there's no proof that they're safer cause they never been, they've never been on the road. And I saw in the paper the other day, you know, Tesla's got all these, you know, crashes, uh, due to their automotive system. So, you know, whoever knows, but you know, it's, it's fearful. You know, I, when I lecture and, um, when I was president of AHA, you know, and I, we talk about what we're doing. That's another thing, you know, we're, um, you know, working very hard because there is going to be legislation dealing with automated cars. I mean, there is an advantage. I mean, you look at, you know, the senior population, the disability population that are locked in their homes that we all can appreciate, you know, having living through COVID, you know, but if, you know, you could make a phone call and, you know, a driverless car shows up and then can transport you, you know, all of a sudden these people that are locked in their homes now have freedom and independence that they never had. Um, so, you know, there are huge amounts of advantages, but, you know, the technologic technology companies, they all want immunity. Um, they want, you know, if they're going to be held responsible, which they don't want to be, you know, they want to force you into arbitration where they pick the arbitrators. Um, you know, so AHA has worked really hard to make sure, you know, people's rights aren't ha are taken away. But, you know, I say to the lawyers, I said, you know, client walks into your office and they said they were involved in an automobile crash where defendant ran a uh, red light, T-boned them, they 
herniated a disc in their neck or their back and they need a fusion. So I said, how many of you would be excited to take that case? You know, how many of you, would any of you turn that case down? You know, and there's silence. And I said, okay, now picture this. Same accident, except the car that went through the red light was an automated driverless vehicle. And now the claim is against Google or, you know, the Ford Motor Company or whatever the technology company is against Tesla, whatever. And the claim is that the algorithm in the car was defectively designed. And so now you went from this, you know, red light accident to this product liability where you're arguing that the algorithm you know, which you don't even understand what that is, is <laughs> poorly designed, you know, and now all of a sudden, you know, that case that, you know, people might settle, you know, for three, four, five hundred thousand dollars, some would take less, some would settle more, whatever, is now this huge major product liability case. And now you're not so keen on, you know, taking um, that case. And, and that's, you know, certainly frightening. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, AHA has done is, you know, continue to fight against, you know, forced arbitration. And, you know, if they get rid of the filibuster, they'll get rid of, we'll get rid of forced arbitration. But I think that day's coming, not the filibuster, but getting rid of forced arbitration that, you know, more and more they want to, you know, force you into. Yeah. I'm curious, because um, <clears throat> it's a bit of a different model that you practice within. What is it like practicing in an 80 plus lawyer law firm and also you've seen it go from a much smaller group to a much larger group what what has it been like being part of that growth as well well i mean even when i joined stark and stark i think i was the 32nd or 33rd you know attorney um, which is certainly much bigger than i had come from i you know, started with a firm, I don't know, 15, 16 lawyers. I then left to go to a smaller firm that was run by a father and son. And then there were, I think, three or four associates. Um, and then I went to Stark and Stark. And what makes Stark and Stark unique is not just that we have a large personal injury group. It's, as I said, 30, 40 plus lawyers. Um, but we also have this whole non-personal injury um, side of the firm, you know, that's do, you know, hourly billers, be it, you know, family law, that some of them, you know, don't even do um, litigation, you know, and, and that's sometimes it's strengths and sometimes it's frustrating. I remember being at a retreat, it's one of my first years as a, as a partner and we're at this retreat down in uh, Naples, Florida. And one of the lawyers, uh, one of the senior lawyers is talking about the, the problems of hourly billers and how difficult it is, you know, to have to keep time that that our firm, the personal injury lawyers don't. And he's going on and on. And I, I had had enough. And I said, you know, you guys don't understand. I said, you know, you go to Thanksgiving dinner and you're enjoying, you know, turkey and you're enjoying being with your family. Me, I'm sitting there running a direct across examination across my mind. I'm running a you know, direct, I'm running across. I'm, I'm thinking of an opening. I'm thinking of a closing. You know, it's nonstop. Um, it's always with me. 
Um, so I don't want to hear about the problems of hourly billers. Um, you know, we have our own pressures um, as uh, trial attorneys. But, you know, at times it's, it's difficult. Um, you know, certainly as a PI, personal injury attorney, you generate more income than uh, an hourly biller. But, you know, as I got older, um, you know, I said, I, like, hey, it's, it's better being part of a big group. You know, and then, you know, collaboratively, you know, in a big firm, there's so much experience and advice that you can get and give. I mean, one of the hardest things now during, you know, the pandemic is that, you know, I haven't been in the office for a year. And so we have new lawyers, personal injury lawyers that, you know, join the firm. And, you know, I don't get to help train them and they don't get the benefit of my knowledge and my experience. You know, whereas before, you know, at least in, in my office in, in Lawrenceville, we have an off, multiple offices. But, you know, I could walk up and down the hallway and say to the younger lawyers, hey, how are you doing? What are you working on? Is there anything I can help you with? You know, they could come to me and say, hey, I've got this, you know, deposition tomorrow. I've got this trial. You know, what do you think the theme should be? That type of thing that it's much, much harder. I mean, like I said, we've lawyers, I don't even know their names because they've joined in the last year and you know, on a Zoom call when you see 30 names and, and we use Teams, so you don't even, on Teams, you don't even get to see all the people uh, in the meeting, which is extremely frustrating to me. Um, yeah, we use it too. Yeah, that is a frustrating aspect of it. I'm, I'm curious, is, is there anything in particular that you credit uh, with your own success and is there one tip that you would give to other trial lawyers that has been part of your secret to success as uh, a personal injury practitioner? Mm, I think I've given out some of the ones, you know, that I talked about today that, you know, that I would, you know, recommend, you know, which is obviously know your clients, um, get out of your office, that it's, um, you're always learning. So I've been, you know, listening to, you know, one of the nice things about this being at home is you have more time, you know, where, you know, if you had a deposition, you lost an hour driving to the deposition. It never started on time. You drove back, you know, you had to de decompress from the deposition. So, you know, you killed a whole day in from a deposition, you know, now, same thing with, you know, court, you know, you have a motion. Uh, I drive an hour, sometimes an hour and a half um, in traffic, stress from the Jersey, you know, traffic. You know, you'd sit in a courtroom, a filled courtroom, waiting to be heard. I mean, you wasted a whole half a day. And then you argue the motion in 10 minutes. We have one county in New Jersey where every other Friday they bring cases in just to, for the lawyers to get yelled at by the presiding judge, you know, why, where's the case? Why, you know, how why do you need more time? Um, and he, the judge takes the cases alphabetically. So if you've got a case where your client's last name starts with S, you're like going to be there the last, probably, you know, at the end of the day. So inefficient. You know, now you have a motion. You get an email from the law clerk or the secretary saying your motion's going to be heard tomorrow at 11 o'clock. 
Here's the link. 11 o'clock, the on time, maybe a couple of minutes, five minutes. You argue for five, ten minutes. Judge says, I'll send you the decision. Boom, and you're done. So as a result of having more time, I've spent more time on webinars. Um, and, you know, I've when I say, you know, watch awards, I mean, I've been listening to Roger Dodd, who's just incredible, you know, on cross-examination. I've been practicing, you know, for 40 years. I'm learning stuff from watching Roger. You know, um, you know, the case analysis um, out of California, you know, they've got access to um, uh, the, whatever the company is, it's, you know, Court TV. And so they've got the lawyers and they have people analyzing and you learn from that. And, you know, I remember I was a, I was a commentator on uh, a lawyer in New Jersey who got an 80 million or $60 million verdict, you know, and I'm sitting there and I'm criticizing some of his exhibits, you know, and I'm like, you got a $60 million verdict, it's pretty good, you know, who am I to, you know, criticize um, his exhibits, but some of them I thought they could be better, and then the poor guy had to, the day the appellate division reversed his verdict, he's doing a presentation with Roger, and Roger's, you know, beating him up over the questions he, you know, the way he asked the questions or what the questions were. Um, but, you know, I don't know which was worse, having to sit through Roger's critique or having a $60 million verdict overturned. Um, but, I, you know, I expect the latter. But, you know, but you learn. And so, you know, I keep telling these, Pay, you know, learn this. You never stop learning. You can always improve. You know, these, you know, these lawyers that don't try to learn is, is a, you know, such, such a mistake because you can always, you know, you can always get better. Great advice across uh, multiple aspects, not just uh, professionally, personally as well. Uh, so uh, last question, are there any trends you see in dealing with issues that arise at settlement? So I ask that obviously just because, you know, that's, that's what, Synergy does, and we deal with a lot of complicated issues. And it seems like for trial lawyers, it's getting more and more complex with Medicare and ERISA and Medicaid and, you know, dealing with all the issues that, that we, we call the case after the case. Basically, once you guys get, get that case settled, it's, there's a lot of little things that have to happen at the end to get that case closed. Well, so I'm just curious. It's a nightmare. Um, you know, it's why I use your company. Um, you know, I had a case, um, it, you know, in the guardrail case that I was talking about, you know, where we wanted to settle with one of the defendant driver, one of the car that cut us off, they had a limited policy. You know, and then the question was, well, the client's a Medicaid recipient. Um, and now it's like, well, she wants, you know, she's, doesn't really want to settle, doesn't think it's enough money. And it wasn't, but it was what it was. And, you know, she's got this Medicaid lien and we don't know what the liens, you know, what are we going to have to pay? You know, and, you know, we can't, Medicaid won't negotiate until you settle. Um, and I'm trying to determine whether I should settle. <clears throat> you know, And that was a problem. And, you know, I have another, uh, K 
case that a, a wrongful death case, you know, and we finally wrapped it up and there's a Medicare lien and it's not that big. Um, you know, the client was killed immediately in the crash. So there's not this huge lien, but there's a lien, you know, and I, you know, finally we got the administration papers done. So I'm ready to disperse the money. You know, and then I find out we don't have the final Medicare lien yet. And I call my paralegal and I go, well, why, why don't we have the final Medicare lien number? It's just we can't get the final until you settle the case and you're ready to pay. And we were having problems, you know, getting letters of administration because of COVID. You know, there's nobody in the surrogate's office. And so now I have to tell the client it's going to be another 45 days, um, you know, and She's obviously not happy and I don't blame her, but, you know, so that's, you know, extremely, extremely frustrating, you know, and then again, you, again, you're trying to, if you have a big Medicare lien or Medicaid lien, you're trying to settle the case and makes it difficult to settle and you don't know, you know, because all the client cares about and rightfully so is, you know, what's my recovery going to be? Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't envy lawyers like yourself who are dealing with cases and having to ultimately then deal with those issues, um, you know, because it does make the practice much more difficult and clients get frustrated over not, not having that certainty of what the net proceeds will be, which is, it's, it's admittedly, you know, brass tax kind of important thing for someone to evaluate when they're deciding whether to sell their case or not. So it's, it's definitely difficult. It's, you know, why we do what we do. So, um, I, Bruce, I, I really want to thank you for your time today. Very much appreciate it. It was a great conversation. If, um, if anyone listening wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to reach you? Um, well, you certainly could email me. My email address is uh, B Stern, B S T E R N at Stark, S T A R K hyphen Stark.com. Or call me on my cell, 609, or call my work number, 609-895-7285. We just got a new phone system that's cloud-based, so now it makes uh, life pretty easy. Well, we'll include the contact information in the show notes when the podcast gets put up on the website. And uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in to Trial Lawyer View. Well, thanks for having me. This was fun. Thanks for tuning in to Trial Lawyer Review. You can find more at triallawyerreview.com and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future.